0: Welcome to the Bridge Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from our special guest speaker. To access other resources or to find out more information about our church, visit thebridgespringfield.com or find us on social media at The Bridge Springfield. Um, okay, uh, so I'm Derek Ellis and I'm one of the elders here at The Bridge. And I'm looking forward to continuing our sermon series today. Called Raining in Grace. Uh, Pastor Dennis did an incredible job last week of opening up uh, our series with a sermon called Dare to Believe. And so I recommend listening to that one online whenever you guys have a chance. Um, one of the things that I love about Dennis um, is that my friend is bold. He is assertive and he's blunt. Can I get an amen with that? Yeah. Um, I actually, at the Restoration uh, Park night, I texted him. He got on stage. He shared a quick thing about the gospel, and he got off. I texted him immediately. I was like, bro, I love you so much. Like, I was just like, it was so good, and he was just like, he was so into it, and I'm just like, I'm so thankful for him. But by nature, I'm not bold and assertive like Dennis is. Not in my personal life, not in my professional life. Professionally, I'm a Christian counselor. And I even have to do this thing called a gentle reframe with my clients, which is basically I'm just introducing like a new idea to them and I'm kind of like shifting the way that they think a little bit. And also, I'm the father, I have two daughters. And so, if I'm not gentle, tears will be flowing. I said something not the gentlest yesterday, and Ava, our eight-year-old, was like, you hurt my feelings the way that you spoke to me, and I was like, (laughs) I didn't know another way. Um, So as I was preparing for this sermon, I was trying to think of like a way that I could gently introduce today's topic to you, and I couldn't think of one. I actually sat there with like a blinking cursor in my face like how do I gently say this there wasn't one and I realized that the topic kind of lends itself to being bold so today church I want to tell you that religion cannot save you I realize that this is not as bold as Dennis going it is the bullcrap but I'm growing I'm doing my I'm trying okay Religion cannot save you. And maybe some of you are like, well, what am I doing here then? You know, what kind of church is this? Well, this is a church that teaches what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. Oh, I'm not religious, so I'm not worried. Friend, all of us are religious. Okay? And what do I mean by religion? Religion is any self-directed effort that we live by that we use to try and qualify ourselves before God. Or other people. So some of us follow the religion of being a good person. I'm a hard worker. I'm punctual. I give to charity. I save baby puppies like I'm a good person, right? Some of us try and uphold God's law. You know, the one he handed down to Moses. And, you know, there's a difference between this. People like to think there's a difference between ceremonial law and moral law. And I try and be a really moral person like God is asking us to. So as I talk about the law later in the sermon, that. This is what Paul's referring to, God's law in the Old Testament. Some of us live by the religion of what feels good. That's what drives our behavior. That's the code of ethics that we live by. What's good, what's fun, what makes me feel good, what you know, what makes me happy. It's still a lifestyle that we serve, a rule for living that we serve. So all of us are religious. We all hold ourselves to some standard. So maybe the statement, religion cannot save you, feels uncomfortable or it feels offensive or dangerous or worrisome. Like, oh, Derek, you're veering into the hyper-grace territory. We need to stay balanced between law and grace. We need to stay on the straight and narrow. But we can't serve both. We can't serve both law and grace. There's no balance. Between the two. Does that make some of you uncomfortable, me saying that? Am I really asking you to choose between religion and God's grace? Yes. Because that's what the Bible asks you to do. If you don't believe me, we're going to look at what the Word of God says together. But first, let's pray. Lord, I pray for open hearts this morning. I pray for open minds. Jesus, give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord. Give us increasingly greater intimacy with your heart, God, by your grace, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Romans 7 and 8 today. Um, i 'll be reading out of the ESV, so for some context if you 're unfamiliar with Scripture, um, Romans is a large letter found written by the Apostle Paul found in the New Testament and Romans 7 and 8, which I'll be reading from, are actually part of a larger, like one continuous thought that Paul starts in chapter 6. So obviously I'm not going to read all three chapters to you today. I don't want to put you to sleep, but I recommend that you guys go and do that so that you can kind of see the arc of Paul's thinking, okay? But we're going to start Romans 7 verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So let's look at that. You have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Now, in the first three verses, Paul, uh, of chapter 7, Paul likened the law to a husband that a woman is married to. A death occurs, the woman is free, no longer bound to that marriage, and she's free to marry somebody else. So Paul is saying here, listen, you used to be married to the law, but a death has occurred. And now you've died to law, and now you belong to Jesus, You can be married to him. The religious mindset, though, is going to come in and try and tell us that we need to keep a balance. We need to live holy lives. God's law is good. We need to keep it. But we can't be balanced between two spouses. Can we? We cannot be balanced between two spouses. We have to choose We have to bind ourselves to one. So if you're going to live married to both law and grace, to religion and Jesus, you're choosing a spiritual life that looks like being tossed back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it's exhausting and it's ineffective. Those of us who are married know that we have a hard enough time keeping up with one spouse, let alone two. Don't glare at me, honey. Remember, I said nice things at the beginning of the sermon. Look what Paul says, so you may belong to another in order that we may bear fruit for God. The only way to bear fruit for God is to be dead to the law. Let me ask you something. What kind of fruit have you experienced in your life when you've tried to live between the two? Does trying to live between law and grace produce joy, life, freedom, peace, love, I would venture to say no. What fruit has it produced? I've worked with enough counseling clients. I've had enough conversations with with friends. I know myself well enough that trying to keep the law in any measure for me has only ever produced guilt, condemnation, shame, failure, hopelessness. Has this been your experience? Why is that? Let's look at this. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Let's look at that. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So I have a funny story to tell you guys. So when I was in college, I was in a college ministry, right? And in in the college ministry, there's this individual who... Believe that pop music was evil and that you were <laughs> um, compromising your salvation if you listened to pop music. That was like his general stance. Apparently, somehow, pop music makes the blood of Jesus lose all of its power. New to me. So you, you, you may not know this about me, but I have a somewhat rebellious streak. My mom's sitting over there, and she is saying yes and amen as it rises up in her spirit. Um... <laughs> But I, I just don't like being controlled, okay? Is anybody else like that? You just don't like it when someone, like, tries to control you. I have this, like, visceral bodily reaction to it. So whenever I was around this individual, I'm not proud of this, okay? This is very immature. It's very petty. But two can play this petty game. So whenever I was around this guy, I, I found myself just singing the trashiest pop songs. <laughs> On the radio of that time. It, it felt like a compulsion. I kid you not. Like there was one time he like walked in the room and it just like came out of my mouth like tongues. So I was just like, Wah! and I couldn't stop myself and I just kept going and I was thinking to myself, why am I doing this? But I liked it. Um, but I would watch his face just like drop and he would just like grow like, oh God, so concerned. Listen, I'm not proud. It's borderline immature. Whatever. But, like, (laughs) did I need to be singing those songs? No. That's the truth. I didn't need to be. But the law, this command that showed up from this guy don't do this, don't touch, don't sing, don't whatever, all that it did, it didn't make me want to be holy, it made me want to rebel. That's the law, right? And I wasn't being loving. I, wasn't, I was mocking him. I was being proud. I was being rebellious. I was being vindictive, if I'm being honest. So, but when the law was presented, sin followed. Where the law was presented, sin followed. Hear what I'm saying? It's not the fact I was singing these songs. It has to do with being presented with religion Satan sees that opportunity in me to produce pride and rebellion. Religion cannot save you. Verse six, but now we were released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of written code. The law holds us captive. Don't come at me, the Bible says it. How does, the Bible, how does the law hold us captive? If we try to follow the law in order to produce righteousness, we become enslaved to ourselves. Have you experienced that? We get into this mode that I call morbid navel-gazing. We live our lives like this. We're bent over, folded in on ourselves, obsessed with how we are doing. How am I doing? I'm assessing myself. I'm taking my spiritual temperature every day. Taking stock, analyzing, rating, judging. Is that you? Do you feel that? How am I doing every day? Am I doing my devotions? Am I praying enough? Am I quoting enough scripture? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? It's so flipping exhausting. And at the end of the day, what we're producing is not righteousness, but self-righteousness. Righteousness that's derived from our own efforts. And since we're finite beings, we will fail. We're gonna fail at these standards we hold ourselves to, right? And once you've failed, Satan's gonna be right there. With, to use your failures as an opportunity for guilt and condemnation. And guilt and condemnation and shame are naturally self centered mindsets. It's about me. What am I doing? Am I enough? do you see this? Like this captive mindset? It's like this merry-go-round from hell that just is like performance, failure, shame, performance, failure, shame, again, and again, and again, and again. But we've died to the law. We're out of that old marriage. We're married to somebody new. It's not this abusive cycle. We, we, And grace, Jesus operates by grace, not the law. And grace is diametrically opposed to self-righteousness. What is grace? Undeserved favor. It's having all the benefits and the privileges and doing none of the work. So as long as we try to live by the law, we'll be striving towards our self-righteousness. But when we allow that old marriage to die and we embrace Jesus... We are the beneficiaries and the recipients of everything Jesus did. The fulfillment of the law. And now we're free. So let's look at verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Here's a key truth that we need to understand if we're going to gain clarity as to why religion can't save us. okay, And why we can't attempt to have balance. Because the law is not supposed to be a pathway to become good. It's supposed to be a mirror to show us that we're not good and to show us that we need Jesus. The law in itself isn't bad. It's just not supposed to make us good. It's a mirror. We're supposed to look in it and see ourselves and go, wow, I need some help. But we misinterpret the law and we look at it and we say, here's a pathway to become good. No, it isn't. Well, I want to live a holy life. I want to honor God. That's well and good, but we honor God by trusting his son who already fulfilled the law, not by our own efforts. But God's law is good. Yeah. I had a friend this week. He texted me, and he was like, hey, what are you preaching about this week? And I said, the title is Religion Can't Save You. His immediate response back, yeah, but religion and the law is good. Slow down, bro. I'm just saying what the Bible says. And I said, yeah, it is good. It's just not meant to save us. Like you could feel the anxiety just like, you know, like a little geyser, like shooting up. And I was like, no, relax. Grace. Grace saves us. Jesus saves us. Verse nine. I was once apart, alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death in me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Think about Adam and Eve. They lived in the garden. They had perfect communion with the Father. And they had one command, don't eat the fruit from that tree. The law was for their good. God knew exactly what would happen, right? He knew exactly what would happen if they ate that fruit. So the command was good. It was life-giving. But Satan shows up and uses the opportunity, the law, to deceive Adam and Eve. So as long as we're subject to law, Satan will use it against us. Paul further extrapolates on this idea in verses 12 and 13. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So friends, what is our hope? Let's look at Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of sin and death has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law. Uh, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. What does condemnation mean? So honestly, if you've been around church circles for any period of time, I feel like I experienced this. Like there's words that get thrown out and like we accept it, but we don't really know what it means right? Like discipleship was one of those words for me. I actually had to look it up a couple weeks ago. And I've been a Christian for like 17 years. And I'm like, what does discipleship mean? Um, So I had to look that up. Condemnation. I was like, what exactly is meant by condemnation? So I looked it up and condemnation means to be found guilty of a crime and deserving of punishment. So in Christ, there is no guilt for your crimes, and you're no longer deserving of punishment. Amen. Amen. (laughs) However, we have to understand something. We have an enemy, and the enemy's job description is in his name. The original Hebrew name for Satan is Hasatan, meaning the accuser. What do you think the accuser does? Finds you guilty of a crime and convinces you that you are deserving of punishment. Do you understand Satan's an expert in the law? One preacher said that he is a master legalist, using legalism and religion to sow guilt and condemnation in you. Let's take a quick assessment. Do you ever hear accusing voices in your head telling you you're not good enough? Amen, yes. Are you having memories pop up about past mistakes? Do you beat yourself up for mistakes that you make in the present? That's the voice of Satan, using the law to produce condemnation and guilt, but there's no condemnation and guilt in Jesus. There's no punishment for the sin. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He received condemnation within himself on the cross, punishment we should have had to release us. He became sin who knew no sin. He took on the punishment. When he died, we died with him. And we're no longer bound to our first husband. There's no room for Satan to come in with condemnation. It doesn't matter. Jesus is like, I fulfilled it. It's done. It's over with. They're good now. Satan has no grounds to condemn us. For God, verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus became Emmanuel manual. God with us. He took on our nature. He became like us so that we could become like him. God knew that he himself was the only one who could do what the law required. He didn't come to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill it. He didn't come to say it was useless. He just took on our flesh to do what we couldn't do, friends. And he fulfilled it and now he's giving that righteousness to you. It's your righteousness. It's your perfect obedience. His death was our death and his resurrection was his resurrection. And now we walk according to the spirit. What does that mean? Our eyes are fixed on him. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Before with the law, our focus is on our performance. Now it gets to be on his it gets to be, hit. It, our eyes are on his victory. It's not getting to the end of the day and putting your head on the pillow and did, did I do well today? You get to put your head on the pillow and say, Jesus did great today. Perfect, actually. Religion can't save you because Jesus already did. And we're free to embrace self-forgetfulness. And that's this idea that we don't have to do that morbid navel-gazing. We can forget about ourselves and love other people and love God and get over ourselves. And fix our eyes on Jesus. Philippians 1 says that he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. That he's going to bring in... And I'm wrong on that. Next part. Um, he's going to bring to completion the work that he began in us. That's Philippians 1. It says elsewhere that he's the author and perfecter of our faith, not Philippians 1. So how do we apply this in our life? I've been accused by counseling clients and other people of like, I stay in the abstract. I live in the gray a lot. You know, I stay abstract, theological, and I have a tough time getting to the practical. But... I think that it's an incredibly practical process to disengage from the religious mindset and begin to rely fully on what Jesus has done for you. And I wanna share with you guys my own testimony of how I came out of this religious mindset. And it began uh, 10 years ago for me in this time period that I've dubbed like the gospel explosion in my life. Um, It was my senior year of college. I was a few months away from graduating and getting married. And I picked up this book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And it's written by a guy named Tolian Tavidjan, who is Billy Graham's grandson. And in this book, Tolian begins to unpack the beauty of the gospel of grace. And I want to read a quick excerpt to you from what Tolian wrote. He said... Because Jesus was strong for me, I was free to be weak. Because Jesus won for me, I was free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, I was free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, I was free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded, I was free to fail. And I remember reading that passage, and my heart freed up. And I began for the first time in my life to fall in love with Jesus because my existence was settled on him now and not on me. I was freed up from me and able to be in awe of Jesus. And I actually remember um, sitting in Rudy's smokehouse when it used to be on Bechtel Avenue. And I'm sitting across from Kels and I'm telling her about this book. And I just remember sitting there and I was going, I'm so in love with Jesus. I am so in love with him. And it wasn't because I was good. It's because he was so good to me. And even like now I'm getting teary-eyed remembering like that moment again. But I, we can experience breakthrough, but our breakthroughs have to be stewarded, friends. Right? And so, despite my newfound joy in the gospel, condemnation doesn't stop. It doesn't stop till today. It's still a conscious effort at times that I have to put into keeping my mind focused on the truth of the gospel. The gospel isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Okay? So, when we try and do things to earn God's love, that's the problem. But to keep our minds and hearts focused on God's love, that's not a problem. That's That's spiritual growth. That's discipleship. So God was faithful to me, and I began to form some practical tools that I want to share with you guys today. Um, One is I began to cultivate a practice in my life of noticing when shame and guilt and condemnation showed up. I think sometimes we're not even aware when they've showed up to the party. Okay? We've got all these emotions and then shame and guilt come up and are like partying with us and we're just like, I don't know how you got here. We're not aware of when they show up, but we need to be. And because we need to ask ourselves the question, whose performance am I relying on? Most of the time for me, when shame and guilt show up and condemnation, it's because I'm relying on me and I feel like I've failed. And it's a reminder, oh, this is about Jesus' performance and not my own. The second thing I started doing was I would ask Holy Spirit to intentionally shift my mind back to the cross, to the blood of Jesus, to his resurrection, to him saying, it is finished. My eyes fixing them back on him and three I would do this thing called preaching the gospel to yourself this is what church tradition has called confession it's this idea of like I'm confessing out loud the truth of the gospel aloud to myself so what does it look like it looks like this for me hey Derek this isn't about you My wife is like, Amen, brother. (laughs) Derek, this is not about you. This is about him. Jesus, you died for me. You love me. You made me righteous. You made me holy. You love me. You accept me. Jesus, you did what I couldn't do. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for doing what I couldn't do for myself. That's preaching the gospel to yourself. That's rooting yourself back into the reality of the gospel. So I want to invite the worship team to come out now and go ahead and get set up. But if you would, I want you to go ahead and put your hands, stand up with me. And I want you to put your hands out in a posture of receiving. And I want to lead you just in a time of rooting yourself in the gospel, of confessing the truth of God's word. Jesus, thank you that you died for me. Jesus, thank you that you came down in flesh and did for me what I could not do for myself. Thank you for your blood, Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness. Jesus, help me to fix my eyes on you. I turn away, Jesus. I repent from self-righteousness. I repent from trying to do this life on my own. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you break me wide open so that I can receive grace spirit guide me into greater revelation regarding the gospel of grace. I pray that today would be a marking point for this church that we would become a people so steeped and rooted in the gospel that we're just free of shame, that we're free of condemnation, that we're free of guilt, that we prophesy and speak the word of God to one another when the enemy wants to come in and sow guilt and so doubt and so shame into our hearts that the Holy Spirit would rise up in us and we begin to preach the gospel to one another. I pray that our feet would become rooted in the fertile soil that is the gospel, that we'd be nourished by it, that it wouldn't just become something that we live by cognitively or that we think that we just need to like, oh, I'm going to twist my thoughts around, but it becomes the lifeline of our life that it feels like death to us if we're not living by the gospel of grace. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would seal this in us this morning, that you would come in, that you would root this into our hearts, Lord. Jesus, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. We hope you received a fresh revelation of the gospel of grace and that you experience the goodness of God in your everyday life. For more content like this or to stream our services live, visit thebridgespringfield.com. Have an awesome week.